Welcome to It's Your Community with Vanessa Denha, a public affairs presentation of News Talk 760 WJR. Welcome to It's Your Community, everyone. I'm Vanessa Denha Garmo here of Epiphany Communications and Coaching. Today, our guest, uh, MK Lever, is a former Division I athlete and PhD candidate at UT Austin, combines her personal experiences as a college athlete and the weight of her academic research in areas concerning the NCAA, uh, NCAA rhetoric, discourse, and policy to create her stunning and emotionally driven literary debut, Surviving the Second Tier. MK, also known as Katie, welcome to It's Your Community. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, a pleasure to have you here on the show. So let's talk about the book, you know, Surviving the Second Tier. It's your first book, but as a busy PhD student, PhD student, what motivated you to begin writing fiction? It was actually my research that motivated me because, you know, researching policy is not the most exciting thing for most people. Um, And I would get a lot of questions about my research and I would start going off about policy, you know, and people's eyes would just kind of glaze over. Um, And then so I started to use a metaphor to describe my research. I would say, you know, the NCAA is a dystopia. And it was something that really got the wheels turning with people. It opened the door for really interesting conversations. And I was using it so often that I, you know, eventually thought somebody should really write this book and then nobody did. And so I thought, okay, I guess I have to do this because the, it, you know, the, the plot that I had in my head and the characters that I had in my head were keeping me up at night. So I was like, if I don't write this book, I'm never going to sleep. <laughs> That's so funny. It's like they're haunt- they're haunting you, those characters. So <laughs> did your research actually what you're researching? I know it's that inspired it, but did you kind of see the story unfold as you were doing your research? Like, what are you writing your thesis on? So my dissertation is about paternalism in college sports and looking at how college athletes are conceptualized as children, as not responsible for their own actions and how language use and the media play into that. And so that is a big overarching theme of my book and of most of my research is just the various uh, levels and structures of control that are placed over college athletes and how it's very difficult for them to resist the system that they're in just due to these different constraints. Um, And so it's a very central theme of my book. That's really interesting. So I want to elaborate on that, you know, uh, in your books, uh, Surviving the Second Tier, that you draw on these elements of your own experiences as a college athlete and your own experience, personal experience are, are reflected in the in the character. So can you kind of give us a seek preview of some of those experiences that you had? Yeah, so um, I was a distance runner in college. My book is not about track, um, but, okay. um, but something that, you know, that I experienced as a college athlete was um, just those varying structures of control that I was mentioning earlier. Um, and, and one of the ways, I think the easiest way for coaches to control athletes is to play mind games with them. Um, Mm. so there were a lot of different ways that my coaches would, um, coerce me to train through injuries, or they would threaten to take away my scholarship. And when I graduated from college, I started hearing more and more of these stories about college athletes who had been through similar things. So it's sort of this, this silent epidemic in college sports, because it's also 
very difficult for college athletes to come out and say anything because they really risk losing their scholarships or, you know, losing their position on a team, even for speaking out against, uh, against abusive coaching. Um, and so it was something that I really wanted to write about just because I knew that I wasn't alone in my experiences and that, you know, maybe somebody else would read it and realize, um, oh, all of these things that I've been normalizing as a college athlete are actually not normal and they're very wrong. So is it, has it become part of the system in recent years and do parents play a part in that? You know, cause we know that there's a lot of parents living vicariously through their children and their athletic ability. So how does that, you know, is it something new and are parents involved? I wouldn't say it's something new. Um, the NCAA has been very focused on restricting athletes' voices and athletes' rights from the very beginning. Um, so in the 1950s, back when the NCAA was first um, officially forming as a, a as the organization that we know it today, um, they coined the term student-athlete as an attempt to restrict college athletes' workplace rights because they argued that student-athletes are students first and not employees. Um, okay. And so with with that, you know, that takes a lot of workplace benefits away from college athletes and that restricts their voices. So it's really built into the very structure of the NCAA. Um, I'm thankful enough to not have parents who tried to live vicariously through me. They gave me a lot of agency and choice in my um, athletic and, and other pursuits growing up. Um, and so I think it's really more of a systemic issue on behalf of the NCAA and then different um, just different parties that they enable within college sports as well. So you, for your research, you focused on the area of the NCAA, correct? That area of sports? Yes, correct. Okay. okay. And so how did that, the policy, is that very much interwoven in the uh, influence in your story? Yes, it is. Um, because I think one of the biggest problem in college sports is just faulty policy. Um, okay. There are a lot of policy gaps where athletes aren't protected. So for example, there are no rules, uh, no, no enforceable rules against um, abusive athletes. So um, I don't know if you remember the Larry Nasser case. Uh, at, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I figured okay. you, you would, you know, you being so close, you would know yeah. all about that. Oh, yeah. um, but Michigan state was eventually um, ruled of or ru ruled free of all wrongdoing by the NCAA. And it's technically because Larry Nassar didn't break any real NCAA rules in abusing those athletes because those rules don't exist. Um, and so it's just these different enabling forces and policy failures within college sports that really fail college athletes and subject them to a lot of harm. Um, and so that, that really is the core focus of my book is the, this, the systemic aspects of college sports and how these structures cause harm to college athletes. And I wanted to, I didn't just want to throw facts and statistics at people um, because I think it's very, it's very common for people to um, objectify college athletes and just athletes in general, looking at them in terms of their statistics or their salaries and things like that. And so I really wanted to bring a human aspect to college sports that I think um, is missing a lot from most of the narratives that we see in the media. So that's why you created the story uh, surviving the second tier. We're talking with Katie MK Lever is the author of this book. And you mentioned Larry Nasser, and that's a great example, really horrifying example, actually. 
And, um, you know, so we know it very well here in the state of Michigan. But let me ask you this. I mean, are you hoping with that example, what you've written here and your work on your um, PhD uh, paper, are you hoping that the rules will change in the NCAA? So this does, you know, the Larry Nassar's stories don't happen again. Are you hoping to have influence there? Yes, absolutely. And a big goal of my book was just to educate people on these issues, because I think it's very easy to look at college athletes and think, oh, they're living this dream life, right? Their education is fully paid for, which is not you know, entirely accurate. Um, you know, they get great healthcare and, and they get to live their dream of being a college athlete. Like anybody would want to do that. And that whole dynamic is is not entirely accurate, but it's very easy to glamorize the lifestyle um, if you haven't lived it. And so I really wanted to raise awareness to these issues in hopes that people would see the reality in my fictional story and, and push for change. So what are you hoping most that the readers will consider after reading the book Surviving the Second Tier? I really hope that it, 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 it'll just change the way that they watch college and just sports in general. You know, um, I, I, I hope it will raise awareness of just issues that we tend to not talk about a lot, um, like injuries, healthcare, um, abuse. And I really just want, like, I really just want them to connect with the characters and realize that this might be a fictional package, but the story is not entirely fictional. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you talk about in the second chair and in, in, in your work, um, Katie is the, um, conversations around corruption, censorship, control, exploitation, surveillance, um, abuse, and other issues within college athletic industry. How prevalent are all those pretty prevalent and pretty equally prevalent? It's difficult to, to answer that question. Um, okay. just because there, there aren't any, you know, hard and fast statistics. And so okay. what we go off of are, are, athletes who come forward in the media and talk about these issues. Um, and, and we do see that fairly often, you know, often enough for it to raise red flags. And then adding on to that is the fact that it's mostly former college athletes who are going to the media and, and doing advocacy work in these areas because current athletes, they don't have the voice to do it or they're afraid of losing their scholarship. Sure. Um, and so sure. for every case that we hear about in the news, there are probably dozens of other cases that an athlete just has not spoken about because they can't or they don't want to risk the repercussions of it. Um, but it's definitely prevalent enough to where there are there is legislation at the federal level that's hopefully uh, going to move forward in the future designed to stop these kinds of things. It's enough to generate, um, you know, national headlines. And so it's enough of an issue for it to be a systemic widespread problem. Got it. So it, the situation that you wrote about in college sports in this actual fictional book uh, about the sports industry, is it pretty accurate in depicting how bad it is in, in real life, like the real life scenario? I would say yes. Um, just looking at um, statistics about athletic injuries, um, mental health issues, and, um, and, and just overall um, discrimination and, and, and these cases of, of really, really horrific sexual abuse. I tried not to exaggerate that to keep everything as realistic as possible because I didn't want for people to read it and say like, oh, this is trash, like this can't be real. You know, I wanted to keep it as close to reality as possible while still creating this world that um, was, you know, that, that sort of transcended our own experience 
audience as college sports fans. Um, and so I, I did try to keep it as close to the real world as possible while still, um, while, while still enable, enabling it to provide people with an escape so that it mm -hmm. could be, and I hate to say it like this, but a source of entertainment for people um, mm -hmm. because I really did want to package my research in a way that would be engaging for people. You know, I didn't want to just throw, um, you know, academic talk and statistics and, and, and all that at people because humans are just so wired to follow stories that I thought a story could be just as com uh, compelling and convincing as my research. Mm -hmm. So the example of sexual abuse that, you know, you talk about and you, you use the Larry Nasser example. So a lot of that was shocking to people who are not in the college sports arena. But when you heard about Larry Nasser and stories like that, you know, and people in the, in the, in your world, when you did work, you know, did participate in college sports, was that not surprising to you to hear that story? It was, I think the scope of the Larry Nasser incident was, was a little bit surprising just because he had so many victims and it's hard. It's just hard for me to imagine one person doing that much harm and wanting to do that much harm. Um, but when you look at different power dynamics in college sports, it, it's, it's easy to see how someone like Larry Nassar could get away with that um, because there are a lot of situations just in day-to-day -day athletic life that put college athletes in compromising situations. 60% um, of women's teams in the NCAA are coached by men. And so there are some, you know, interest, some interesting gender dynamics there. I'm not saying that, you know, all male coaches are predators or anything like that, but there is, there is potential for, for things like that to happen. Um, and with trainers like Larry Nassar and, and, and team doctors, there's a lot of one-on-one -on -one time behind closed doors. Um, like, I mean, I remember there were times in college where I had an injury and I'd be taken to a back room and I would just, you know, pull my pants down and let the doctor do whatever they needed to do. Um, yeah. and so the, and, and, you know, again, there are no real policies that police that in the NCAA's uh, official policy books. And, and so there are a lot of situations um, that enable that, that enable that kind of abuse that are just inherent um, to how we play out college sports uh, today. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think that the scope of it was surprising. The number of victims was just a shocking number. Um, but when you look at it a little bit deeper, you can definitely see how someone like Larry Nasser could get away with that completely unchecked by the NCAA. Got it. So what aspect of college athletics are most in need of reform today in your, in your belief? Um, I would definitely say um, athlete health and safety from a variety of different perspectives. Um, you know, I think athlete abuse is the number one priority, um, just because, like I said, there are a lot of different areas where college athletes are vulnerable to abuse. Um there's also the question of healthcare in the NCAA um, and our athletes covered after they graduate because some universities do offer coverage, some don't. And so, um, you know, we see issues with CTE and things popping up years and years later. And then, you know, athletes don't have coverage for that unless they have health insurance of their own. Mm. Um, and then just, you know, other chronic injuries are also very, very problematic. Like I've, I've had to pay for chronic hip injuries out of my own pocket and I'm lucky to have, um, you know, insurance with, with my graduate program. So I've never had to worry about that financially, but I I've known athletes who do. Um, and you know, if the, if the NCAA says that it's committed to the, the well-being and safety of its athletes, I think that that should extend after college sports are over as well. 
Mm-hmm. So what would you like to see avid fans of college athletics do to help change what needs to be changed? I would really like to see them just become more engaged with this conversation. Um, there are, there, there's been a lot of political action around college sports in the last couple of years. So, you know, paying attention to how um, state representatives are acting in the, in these areas, um, just engaging with policymakers, uh, you know, writing, writing lawmakers and things like that. Um, there are also advocacy groups that are helping to reform college sports. Um, I'm in one of them called the Drake Group. Um, There are other groups like the uh, National College Players Association and the Knight Commission that also do really great work. Um, So I'd really like to see college sports fans look beyond the game and get more involved in the arena of advocacy. Um, And honestly, it sounds very counterintuitive, but one of the best things that college sports fans could do for for college athlete rights is is to um, pressure the NCAA with their viewership, Um, you know, and so because I've always viewed it as if if fans aren't watching the games, you know, then the NCAA will cease to exist. So Mm -hmm. I would love to see if and, and this is sort of. I, I think this is kind of unrealistic. I'm a college sports fan too, um, you know. But if if viewers were to stop watching or were to pressure the NCAA in some way and say we're not going to watch if you don't, you know, change your health and safety policies or if you don't, um, you know, support athletes after they graduate and things like that, it would really put the NCAA in a compromising position. And athletes actually have some agency here too. So I could see, and I write about this in my book, um, but I could see college basketball players, for example, um, threaten to sit out March Madness and say, okay, if, if NCAA, if you don't provide us with, you know, quality healthcare and protection from abuse and um, employee status, then we're not going to play in March. And that would cost the NCAA about a billion dollars. Um, so it, it, there are a lot of different forces that could work to pressure the NCAA and they're not invincible. And that was something that I wrote about in my book as well, because I really do believe that um, the NCAA is a very fragile structure if it's mm-hmm. pressured appropriately. So Katie, you're a third generation uh, division one athlete. How have things changed over those three generations? So I, I love that question because it, it's a mix of of progress and regression in some ways. Okay. Um, so my grandpa, my grandpa was a football player, and you know when he was playing, um, they they would play football in leather helmets, and like he would get a concussion and go right back on the field. So you know for all the faults with NCAA. Um, with their health and safety standards, um, they've at least upped their game a little bit there, (laughs) you know, to where, um, to where there are some, there are some standards in place and there are, you know, qualified health uh, professionals helping athletes and things like that. Um, my mom was the first generation of women to benefit from title nine. And so, We've seen we've definitely seen progress in gender equity. March Madness last year really revealed inequity between men and women's basketball and by extension, just men and women's sports uh, at at the collegiate level. Um, And so Title IX has created a lot of change and opportunities for women. um, But the NCAA also needs to step up its game. And then uh, when I was in college, that was really and it wasn't that the NCAA was just becoming commercialized. 
was, you know, in, in 2012 to 2016, but that was where I really saw the commercial aspect of college sports, which I don't believe there's anything wrong with generating revenue um, from college athletics. What I think is wrong is the way that the wealth is hoarded from the athletes that generate the revenue. And so the biggest change I think that I've seen across generations has been the awareness of that exploitation and just the activism and advocacy um, that's been focused on these issues as well, which I do think is progress. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Katie M.K. Lever, Surviving the Second Terrorist, her book. Give us a back uh, background on the backdrop of the story, the book itself. Yeah, so the main premise of my story is that um, in the near future, athletic departments um, eventually spend too much money on things to attract recruits. So like fancy scoreboards and nice gear and, and, and state-of-the-art facilities and things like that. And so enough of these universities, their athletic departments eventually go bankrupt. And so there is this governing body that steps in and says, okay, we're going to salvage these big moneymaker programs who have outspent themselves by consolidating college sports into a single sport model. And that sport is fighting because Mm. fighting is cheap. It doesn't require a lot of facilities. It doesn't require a lot of officials. Um, and then it's glamorous in the same way that college football is glamorous. It's very violent. It's very aggressive. Um, it, you know, it's highly commercialized. People love it. Um, and so that's essentially where my story begins is following, um, this small, what is essentially a mid-major university, um, and following their athletes through a season of their lives. Okay. And so with that, what, what works of fiction have inspired you as an author now? I've, you know, I've just always loved the genre of dystopia. Um, Mm. I love, you know, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, you know, more modern dystopias like the Hunger Games. Um, I just think that dystopias in general, they have this ability to hook readers and to make them think this is a fictional story, but it's also not, you know, and, and so it really raises those thought provoking questions about just the nature of society and like, could we ever turn out this way? And if we don't mm-hmm. stop what we're doing, is this going to be our future? Um, and so I wanted to get people's wheels turning, um, you know, intellectually in the realm of college sports in that way. I wanted for them to read my book and think, okay, this is fiction, but it's also, it also hits a little bit too close to home for my comfort. Got it. Yeah. I I love that genre as well. And so what are you hoping, Katie, that your readers will learn from your, from your main characters in the book? Yeah. I hope that they'll learn that, um, that the life of a college athlete is not as glamorous as the media makes it out to be. Um, you know, we watch highlights on sports center and, and, and things like that. And we think like, Oh man, these college athletes, they're in the prime of their life and they're living the dream. Um, and that can be true. I'm not saying that all college athletes have negative experiences in the NCAA, but it's also not entirely accurate just for the reasons that I've talked about, about, you know, in terms of like injury and abuse and things like that. And so I really wanted to raise awareness of those issues and also to uh, humanize college athletes so that people would, would view them as more than just statistics. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other books in the works? I know you're, you're in your PhD process. Where are you in that process and any other books you want to work, right? I would love to write um, a sequel and possibly a third book um, after 
uh, you know, after surviving the second tier, um, I've also have always wanted to write my nonfiction version of it. So just talking about these issues, um, mm. in, in the form of a nonfiction book, I do a lot of freelancing, um, and I absolutely love, uh, freelancing about, about this work just because I'm, I'm super passionate about it. And it's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. Um, and so I have, I have other works in mind. Um, writing a book is that, you know, it's such a long and complicated process. It's so much more difficult, more difficult than I ever thought it would be, but it's also very rewarding and it's something that I really love to do. So I definitely would like to write more, uh, more books, both fictional and nonfiction. So what's next for your career after you finish your PhD? That's a great question. Um, I'm really looking into academic jobs right now um, because I really I love the research that I do. Um, I taught a communication and sports class last semester that I absolutely loved. And just engaging with students on these issues was was a really, really great time last semester. And I, I just I love talking about these um, issues with people and, um, you know, centering my work around it. And so I'm looking for, um, an academic job with, you know, preferably in a department that has a strong communication and sports presence. Um, I would love to continue my freelance work and my advocacy work on the side as well. And having an a more flexible academic job would enable me to do that and engage in public scholarship. Um, and so really just looking at the academic, uh, job market here in the next, uh, about a year and a half. What's your actual PhD going to be in? It is in uh, rhetoric and language. Oh, okay. Very good. So mm -hmm. how can we get the book? People listening here on Nature Community who want to purchase the book, um, Surviving the Next Tier, how could they purchase it? That is a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's prime eligible. Um, and all you have to do is look up surviving the second tier and it's T I E R like a cake. Um, but yeah, you can get it in two days, um, free shipping with Amazon. Okay. What else do you want to share with our listeners? We have about a minute left with you here at Katie. What do you else do you want to share with our listeners before we let you go? Yeah, I would just like to say, if anyone is hesitant about reading this book because they love college sports, um, I would just suggest that they put that thought to us to the side for a minute. Um, because I, you know, as somebody, as somebody who is highly critical of college sports, but actually, but, uh, but also loves college sports, I've learned through my research that you can be very critical of something that you love you know, those two things can coexist. Um, and so if you're interested in learning more about college sports, um, but you're afraid that it's going to ruin your love of sports, I would challenge you to think more critically about the things that you love, because you can be critical about things that you enjoy um, without diminishing your love for those things. And I think it makes people more responsible uh, consumers and fans as well. Great point. Thank you so much, MK Lever, Katie Lever. Surviving the Second Tier is the book. It's on Amazon. Thanks for joining us and sharing your story with us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Any questions, comments, show topics you want me to get to, you can get to me, Vanessa Denha. You can go to all my social media platforms. I'm on Twitter, LinkedIn, on Instagram. You could find Epiphany Communications on Facebook. You can private message me or go to my website, Epiphany Communications and Coaching. Sign up for my newsletter or email me. As always, remind our listeners to connect, collaborate, and to communicate with your community. Thanks for listening. It's your community a public affairs presentation of News Talk 760 WJR.